Okay, hey friends, good to see you. Glad you're with us for another segment. There have been a couple hundred people along with us on the ride to go through the Transitional Book of Doctrines and Discipline. This is episode 14. We're dealing with the superintendency in this one. This is part five. begins on page 63 of the document that was... They updated the Transitional Book of Doctrines and Discipline at the end of November. You should be able to find it on the globalmethodist.org website. So... um. And leading up to this, just setting this up, the superintendency is a word we use for the episcopacy bishops, and um, there's a lot of concern around this section. I won't be surprised if more people hop on board with us for this section, because um, a, a big part of the lesson that we hopefully learned from the United Methodist Church is that what happens with the bishops matters. If if the bishops are not willing to guard the doctrines and discipline of the covenant community that we have— then what are they good for? In fact, in the United Methodist Church, bishops seem to have been played a large part in the upending of the the purpose of that denomination. It's worth remembering what that denomination still has in writing is fantastic. You know, it's not because of what is in writing that they lost a quarter of their churches this last year. It's because uh, the people in the positions we're going to be talking about did not do their jobs. And so there is a, a vested interest. If you didn't see my conversation with David Donan, he's he's of the mind that what we do with bishops is the most important thing that that we are going to decide at the convening conference this September. Um, even if you don't think it's the most important thing, it, it's clearly important. So that's that's what's behind the the portions we're covering today. We are liking to imagine that there's something that we can put in writing that will guarantee that we don't get into the same mess that we got into into the United Methodist Church. So that's what's that's what's riding on this. We'll see how good a job TJ and I do navigating our way through this. TJ, how are you doing this morning? You ready for this? Doing all right. Yeah, this is, uh, it's probably going to be a little more exciting than the uh, other stuff, at least the first part of it, maybe. Maybe. On what you're into. I feel like everything has been exciting in different ways that we just didn't sign on for. But what I'll be, <laughs> what I'm thinking is that this is actually going to be not as exciting as we want it to be. <laughs> yeah, I guess we won't uh, know that until we actually get into it. Yeah. Well, even if it's, we're super boring, the topic itself is so interesting. And so many people have different thoughts and feelings about this that right. they will add the right. excitement, even if we're, we're lacking. So hopefully we'll yeah. see. Okay. Well, let's let's go ahead and get into it. We're in paragraph five zero one, the nature of superintendency, and uh, I'll be happy to to go ahead and start us reading through this section. Okay. From apostolic times, certain ordained persons have been set apart and entrusted with the task of defending the apostolic faith and overseeing and leading the church in its mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ and to spread scriptural holiness across the world. While shared by the whole people of God, this apostolic task is most clearly expressed in the historic office of the episkopos, which means overseer, or bishop. The Global Methodist Church is led, equipped, and supervised by an episcopacy modeled after that of the early centuries of Christianity and stemming from the historic line of Methodist bishops. We share John Wesley's conviction that bishops and elders are part of the same New Testament order. Therefore, bishops in the Global Methodist Church represent a specialized ministry rather than a separate order and are consecrated rather than ordained to their office. The role of bishop is a sacred trust held for a time as the transitional book of doctrines and discipline of our church allows. It is not a lifelong office. 
So we, we need to camp out before we go forward because the first paragraph is making clear that it's rooted in tradition and history, the early church in particular, that it corresponds with a biblical term, episkopos, which means overseer. And then it goes ahead and draws broad strokes that the primary task is to defend the faith and oversee the leading of the church. So I don't think, I don't expect anybody would have a problem with that really. There are some people who are of a Presbyterian persuasion that, or a Congregationalist persuasion that don't believe that overseers are anything different from elders. But Methodists, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, there are many other traditions believe that bishops... Well, okay, so in the United Methodist Church, what the second paragraph here is about is in the United Methodist Church, they were ordained as a separate order that they were always a part of. That that it, it wasn't a specialized thing within the uh, the order of elders. Rather, it was a whole other order unto itself that they never left. Here, it's making clear in paragraph two. We see the episcopacy different from the United Methodist Church. We believe that they're they're elders and they're consecrated. Is that the right word for it? Yeah, they're consecrated rather than ordained to that office. So they're not ordained to a new office. Rather. They keep their status as an elder in the church, but they're consecrated to a functionally different way of doing that. You've got a specific job as an elder, as a bishop. Is that because you're an elder? Yeah. And as an elder, your role in that position would be bishop. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And rather than we've got elders here, bishops here. Yeah. Deacons over here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, deacons, deacons are a different order. They're ordained, but uh, as it's going to be clear here, you can't go from deacon to bishop. It's only out of the order of elders that you can get a bishop. Right, you have to be an elder Yeah. be a bishop. Yeah. So let's get back into this, but this is one of the areas that we're going to see departure from United Methodist Well, it's, it specifically says in that last sentence, it's not a lifetime office, right. and that's the case in the... In the United Methodist Church, it is a lifelong office that you can only leave, like, if you're removed or if you, like, remove yourself. Right, okay. Yeah, okay, let's get into that third paragraph then. Thomas Koch and Francis Asbury, the first Methodist bishops in America, exemplified an evangelistic and missionary spirit that we trust will be shared by every bishop in the global Methodist Church. The Episcopal office is to keep us relentlessly focused outward toward our mission field, Our bishops must not lean on the trappings of ecclesial office, but lead us from an authentic, humble, and evangelistic love for God and neighbor. So part of what they're doing here is Methodism has always been associated with itinerancy, clergy moving around, but we're kind of going to step back from that, and we're going to have a very itinerant—we're hoping, I think a lot of people are hoping, that the bishops are going to be very itinerant, moving around, cheerleading, giving that energy— while elders stay located, what what has been the case in the Methodist movement has been bishops locate at the conference office, and then the elders are are Maybe. itinerating yeah. around. They're kind of inverting that now. But also, as they're the the question I have is reading early Christian history. It seems to me that bishops were not very itinerant. That they that they had like a center of power that they governed out of. It seems to me that it's a uniquely Methodist feature that we expected. John Wesley at the top, but then secondly, Asbury, when we came to America, to be constantly moving around and guarding the faith in that way. But I'm not sure that that comports with traditional 
church history. I mean, I I like this way that they're going towards. Would you mm-hmm. prefer it the historic way? I guess. If you're asking my personal feelings, yeah, yes. I I guess I would. Um, you know, I just I read these stories about how early bishops operate. Well, so this separation between one's household and the household of God did not exist in the early church. So bishops would oversee these big compounds that were integrated with the church, and there were their houses were centers of people getting their lives together and the church being strengthened. It was very different from this professionalized notion of bishops that we have in the United Methodist Church and that may continue in the global Methodist Church as well. So you can't have a center of power like that if you're moving around all the time. So the question is, how, how does power work? How should it work in the church? Should it be equally spread out among all these elders and these bishops are responsible for just building up the elders, or does it emanate from a central place? You know, so Roman Catholic theology is it emanates through Christ directly through his vicar on earth, who then endows his authority to these different other centers of power. It, it emanates from centers of power. This seems to deal with a very different ecclesiology where it's unique, it's spread out, and then the the power at the top is actually meant to serve the 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 many myriad centers, local churches throughout the connection. I like I like it this way. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I expect many other people will as well. When you've when you've had people at the top abuse their power, right? Then to create a system where you can still have that position, but it's very augmented so that it's it's centered on local churches rather than on the centers of power seems seems wise and practical in many ways. Yeah, yeah. We're coming out of the United Methodist Church. It seems like it's a smart thing to do. Let's look at this last paragraph. The bishop's primary place of servant leadership shall be to an annual conference or conferences of our church. When convened together, the bishops of the GMC comprise a general superintendency that leads our church in spiritual and temporal matters. In addition to residing in the office of bishop, the task of superintending in the global Methodist church extends to the presiding elder, which is the district superintendent, with each possessing distinct and collegial responsibilities. So, one of the things that this presents is this, um, okay, so if it's not its own office, but it's just one of many roles that elders can take, then really, what's the big deal? Like, why not just have elders? Um, the previous understanding was deacon, elder, and bishop are all distinct roles. Right. The Bible has these things listed separately. We're going to acknowledge them as such. The Global Methodist Church is kind of collapsing elder and um, bishop, but then there are all these other tertiary. There are um, presiding elders, presidents pro tempore. There are these executives that are overseeing in other capacities that that are not cheerleaders exactly, but uh, information gatherers. Is Is bishop now just becoming more like a job title and not like... Uh, co-equal with all these other things that are not... Are, are you putting them in this framework that is not really biblical, but just putting a biblical name on it? You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah kind of. Um, I guess I don't really have as much of a... I, I don't know if you're having... If you have a problem with it, I don't have a problem with it. Like, it doesn't bother me. Yeah, there are some people who are so into ecclesiology that they think if you don't have the right order and understanding of how bishops 
elders and deacons all correlate with the laity, then they are not the true church and they're not saving anybody. There are some people who take it that seriously. I don't. I'm sure, sure. Yeah, I don't I, take it. Uh, yeah, I think that's just weird. I, I, I've never felt strongly about it because I think, I think from what I remember, it's not as clear in the Bible, which is why we've got so many different denominations that do it differently. Yeah. So it's if it was clearer, I would have more, I would push back more. But yeah, if there were something clear, in the Bible that said, "Here's the job and duty right. of, of a bishop. Here's how you have to organize. Here's how here's how they relate to elders." We don't have anything like that. Yeah. We just have mention of the office and moral requirements mm-hmm. for sure. how they should behave, but that's it. So. Yeah. So it doesn't bother me as much. Well, speaking of that, let's look at their role and qualifications. It's uh, paragraph 502. Okay, this is section one. Yeah, the <clears throat> office of bishop. Go ahead and read that to us. Bishops are elected from among those within the order of elders and set apart for a ministry of visionary servant leadership, general oversight, and supervision in support of the Christian of, of the church and its mission. As followers of Jesus Christ, Christ bishops are charged with guarding the faith, order, liturgy, doctrine, and discipline of the church. The basis of such discipleship of leadership lies in the life char- lies in a life characterized by personal integrity, spiritual disciplines, and, and the anointing and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Bishops shall be persons of genuine faith, upstanding moral moral character, and possession and and possess the gifts of encouragement, of encouragement, a vital and renewing spirit, and possess an engaging vision for the church. Candidates for the episcopacy should also have a strong record of effectiveness in leadership, in leading. I'm just out of it this morning. Start over. Candidates for the episcopacy should also have a strong record of effectiveness in leading the church in evangelism, discipleship, and mission, and shall be unwaveringly committed to uphold the doctrine and polity of our church, able to commit to effectively teach and communicate the historic Christian faith from a Wesleyan perspective. And it's got scriptural citations. So, Did you look at those scriptural citations? I just pulled them up. I didn't actually look at them. Okay. Um, uh, the first one is uh, John 21... Um, 15 through 17, and that says, When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, why do you love me more than these? This is the NIV. Um, Simon said to John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. All right, read, read that second scripture reading and then we'll, we'll do The some. second one is Acts 20, 28. Mm-hmm. It says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Okay, so these those latter two are instructions for how it is that, that bishops should comport themselves. So there's a lot of good language here. 
about, um, and it's this is where it's explicit, they can't come from the order of deacons, they have to come from elders. So the the I, I underlined some parts, uh, they're responsible for guarding the faith, order, liturgy, doctrine, and discipline of the church. I noticed some language being kind of absent here, though. Whenever the verb here is guarding, what what kind of role does that that make you think of? Defending. Yeah. In order to do that well, don't you think you would need some offensive or defensive implements? Sure. What I guess what do you have in mind? What do you what does your mind go to? So I notice after this, there is not much language about engaging in conflict, prosecuting offenders, um, anything having to do with, uh, w- if it's talking about defending the church, you expect to hear some language that's bellicose, battle-oriented, um, ha- has the notion that we're we're doing battle in some sense and you don't get any of that language. The best it. offense is, a, well, no, the best, what does that say? It's not, yeah, it's the best offense is a good defense, so that's the opposite of what I was No, it's, so you're the, best the best defense the is a good offense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so scripturally, Jesus, whenever he um, declares, you know, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The notion is that there is a contest going on right now that we're supposed to contend for the faith. You know, that's language from Jude, and that bishops are the ones leading the charge. They're sitting, they're, they are the primary ones in that office of defending the faith against the forces of darkness. But there seems to be an undergirding notion here that they do that by doing all positive things. So we're going to go down the line of general responsibilities from here, and you're not going to hear anything about engaging in public argument or discourse, contending for the faith in any sense against the culture or against the forces of wickedness. It's all going to be cheerleaders. They're here to go and travel around and encourage people and equip. And and it's not that those things are not... Uh, you need both and, though. I think you need both carrot and stick. You know, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's oh, yeah. the role. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be great if there were real good Methodist apologists? Mm-hmm. That's not something you really hear. Like, there's tons of Calvinist, uh, 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 Baptist apologists all mm-hmm. over the place. Yeah. Um, that's not something you hear about with. If, if you don't know the term apologist, it, it's an ancient term. Apologia is an explanation, not a, I'm sorry, but here's some, what you're not understanding. I'm explaining it to you in terms you can understand. That's what Christian apologetics is. In the Wesleyan vein, the Methodist vein, we haven't had many people that are very good at that, engaging the culture, advancing the the, the worldview that we have. And here it's very clear that they are supposed to effectively teach and communicate the historic Christian faith from a Wesleyan perspective. That's at the end of paragraph 502. But right now, we're not even clear on what that means. You know, So right now, we need, in my opinion, bishops who are leading that conversation about, here's what authentic Wesleyan Methodism is, and here's what it's not. Here's what we're going to be intolerant of. And I, I actually imagine they're not having that right now they're not they're not having that intolerant tone because we need to have the conversation in earnest before we decide here's what we're not going to tolerate and here's what we are. So until we have that conversation, it seems to me that bishops are hamstrung. But I would like to think that once we do have a clear sense of here's what Methodism is, here's what it's not, that we can have bishops that actually govern the church and don't just have a carrot but have a stick. Okay, so it just occurred to me. So we've got in the GMC there are president pro tempores. Yeah. That are somewhat taking the place of where the bishops were. 
Sort of. And then we're going to have bishops that are separate than that. Or is this just a what temporary What I suspect thing? we're going to have... Okay, so first off, I have insider information, which is kind of cool. Um, there is an Episcopacy task force that has been established under the GMC umbrella that has a lot of big names on it. I don't know if these meetings are officially secret or not, but I've gotten a hold of recent meeting minutes. And they've decided, so I think I shared last week, Karen Nicholas told me that there are a number of task forces or committees that have been established under the GMC umbrella. Their primary task is to put forward legislation for adoption at the convening conference later this year. So there is going to be a proposal about how it is that the Episcopacy operates, you know, because there have been a lot of different questions about how are they elected? How many conferences do they represent? How do they exercise power? Uh, are we going to keep presidents pro tempore, or do they just replace presidents pro tempore? In the United Methodist Church, the president pro tempore position, as we have it in the GMC, was the bishop. Right. You know, And so president pro tempore is one who operates as the president until there's a new president. So the assumption is we were going to have somebody step into that role as a bishop at some point. That's not what this task force is recommending. They're recommending that each annual conference continues to have a president pro tempore and that a bishop oversees four or five conferences at the same time. Not uh, in the administrative capacity that the president's— president pro tempore will be primarily an administrative role, I think. I think that's what they understand. But the bishops will be primarily equipping, encouraging, connecting— and uh, visioning, you know, we're going to get to this here in a second, but um, the president pro tempore, will, they'll collaborate together, they'll operate together, but there will be two separate jobs. So theirs is more just administrative than anything, the president pro tempore. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's okay. what they have been. I mean, some of them know. Some, some are positioning themselves to become bishops, but there are others that are purely administrative and they don't imagine themselves to be bishops. I think that's our president pro tempore. I think that's how Jordan McFall sees himself. He knows he's gifted at administration. He wants to encourage, but I don't think he imagines himself as a traveling superintendent on down the line. Yeah, I guess I would be curious as to what like powers they would have. Like is a, who's, who's in, who's in charge? Is the bishop in charge over the president pro tempore or are they kind of like on the same level or yeah, let's read. Let's read the general responsibilities, uh, pay, par paragraph five hundred three, and see if we can't uh, infer some safe things. Okay. So, as general superintendents of the church, bishops are entrusted with the following responsibilities: one, lead and oversee the spiritual and temporal affairs of the GMC, which confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and particularly to lead the church in its mission of witness and service in the world. Two. Guard, transmit, teach, and proclaim corporately and individually the apostolic faith as it is expressed in the scripture, in scripture and tradition from a Wesleyan perspective. Three, defend, communicate, uphold, and enforce the order, doctrines, and discipline of the church as provided for the, in this transitional book of doctrines and discipline. Four, preside in the general, regional, and annual conferences as assigned. Five, consecrate bishops, ordain elders and deacons, and commission missionaries, entering the names of those individuals into the appropriate records and furnishing proper credentials to each. As these services are acts of the whole church, text and rubrics shall be used in the form approved by the general conference. 
Six, promote, support, and model generous Christian giving with special attention to teaching the biblical principles of giving. Seven, liaison and leadership in the quest for Christian unity in ministry and mission and in the search for strength and relationships with other living faith communities. Eight, promote and support the evangelistic witness of the whole church. And nine, travel through the connection at large to implement the missional strategy of the Global Methodist Church and to foster relationships with other areas of the connection. All right, so nine things. I, uh, on, I don't know if you looked at it, I, I underlined the uh, verbs at the beginning of each. Some of them are strong verbs, some of them are weak verbs. All of them kind of denote areas of responsibility for the bishops. Do you notice anything that you want to remark on on these things? Uh, a lot of them are kind of what the pastors and elders should do. I guess the same thing. So, like uh, promote and support uh, and model generous Christian giving yeah. with special attention to teaching and biblical principles of giving. Like that's they're not the only ones doing that. No, 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 no. Surely. Um, Lead and oversee spiritual and temporal affairs of the global Methodist Church. Um, sounds pretty like general. Yeah, like that's what other ones do. Yeah, that's what that's what elders do. That's what president pro tempors are surely going to do. I guess I'm just I I didn't I don't know why I didn't think about this before, but I'm just not 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 seeing what the difference is between the president pro tempors and the bishops. Yeah, there will be a little bit more in the next paragraph about specific residential duties, but in the meantime, I think it is... What is there I, even a section for President Pro Tempors in here? Did you have? Yeah, it gets addressed. Okay. Yeah, so I don't, I don't think it's it. given the same weight at all as bishops, but even so, yeah, they're, they're mentioned in the Transitional Book of Doctrines and Discipline. Okay. The, the thing that I feel, I, I would like it if this section was advance the cause of the denomination as determined by the General Conference... Punish anybody who doesn't get on board. Oh, punish, that's a... Travel around to do it. Word. So, yeah, punish. So it has strong words in here. Uh, guard, um, defend, enforce. These are good words. But then the question is, what tools do they have at their disposal to do it? I just think if if the model is the poimen, the pastoral role is to fight off the wolves and call the sheep in order, I'm pretty sure that historically that's the role of the bishops, then there has to be a carrot function, you know, equip, vision, encourage, connect, fine, all that stuff good. Then there has to be a stick function, punish, bring up on charges, kick out, call, call on the carpet, and then there has to be the your primary mode of life in doing this is traveling around to do it. If that's what we're clear about, you're going to be on the road, you're going to be engaging in local churches, talking directly to leaders. I think that's all you need to say, because there's no way these nine things contain everything. They're just picking on a few things, half of which are not necessary, because they shouldn't even be bishops if they weren't doing these things to begin with. Right. I don't know. I, I if, if a bishop is over a couple of annual conferences, mm-hmm. um, I mean... That could get overwhelming real quick. I would think there's not. I don't feel like you can effectively like know a lot of the people if you're just 
if you've got a bunch of annual conferences. That's one of the things that I didn't really like about the Oklahoma annual conferences. Jimmy Nunn was over, what, three annual conferences? And I thought it was just like, you can't give them enough attention as a bishop um, to effectively govern that many annual conferences. They just seemed dumb to me. So there's a book that has very much impacted me. Uh, uh, I have it in my office. I'll gladly lend it to you if you ever decide you want to read it. And I highly recommend it to anybody who watches this, but it's called American Saint. It's a biography of... Francis Asbury, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. It's written by this guy, John Wigger. It's by far the most engaging book on Methodism I've ever read. But Francis Asbury was able to travel the whole eastern seaboard up and down every year and effectively administer that entire area with hundreds of churches. It was his way of life, though. I mean, that's the thing that they're picking on here is we need to reclaim the order of administration that was set forth by John Wesley and Francis Asbury. You can do it. So if you're trying to rule from a center of power like a United Methodist bishop, you can't do that. But if you're constantly on the road visiting all your churches, checking up on all of them, Francis Asbury, fun anecdote. Um, a lot of churches have always been cheap. And you can say, hey, you need to have a parsonage fully furnished for pastors, but a lot of churches just wouldn't do it. But Francis Asbury was well-respected and well-known. He was, he was more recognizable than any American president during his day. He was the single most popular person in America at that time. So he was widely known, respected, beloved. He would show up in a town where the Methodist church either didn't have a parsonage or they had a parsonage, but it wasn't furnished. And he would just show up and not tell them. And they would say, Francis Asbury, what are you doing here? And he'd be like, I'm here to stay in the parsonage tonight. And they'd be like, guys, <laughs> We have to get this in order. We can't have Francis Asbury staying out on the street. We can't have him staying in an unfurnished parsonage. So he used his authority as bishop for the benefit of local churches and their pastors, and he he got them in line with carrot and stick. And that's that seems to me to be the model of ministry that they're trying to build toward here. I guess, but Francis Asbury surely could just like kick people out. You didn't have to have um, the annual conference vote on it too. And all of this extra stuff. Like, you're, uh, you're picking on the Achilles heel. Yeah. 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 When Bishop Scott Jones came in and sat down with us, if you haven't seen that interview, you really need to. He talked about how he had the energy for going through the whole process of calling someone up on charges and getting all the people required together to, to have a trial. And I just said, just fire me. <laughs> uh, we, we need our bishops to be spending time on other things. And I, I think this is a real Achilles heel of the program. If we have this, this whole checks and balances measures and you have to go through this whole process anytime there's a, there's a problem, I, I, I'm much more authoritarian. I want to just give them authority to kick somebody out. And if they shouldn't have got kicked out, I mean, that stinks. But, you know, people are going to get harmed either way. I'd rather save a lot of time and money rather than... Going yeah, going through an expensive trial that that seems unnecessary. I don't know. That's I, I guess I can see both sides of it. Like you don't want some power hungry bishop like in the UMC is just going to kick people out left and right because they didn't fall in line with what they perceived as their uh, correct theological stance on homosexuality or whatever. See, I do. I do want them to all hold the same theological perspective, and anyone who's preaching something outside of that, they say, you belong somewhere else, get out, you know? And if they're, if it's a power-hungry thing or an ego thing, then yeah, I just want us to be able to scrutinize bishops and then remove them if it's about them and their ego. But if it's about the mission and the ministry and I identity of Methodism, then I, I want bishops that have no scruples about just saying, hey, you, 
you're just not with the program, get out. We're, we're on a mission here, you're not helping, get out. And if that means that I get kicked out, I'm okay with that. You know, I would like to think I won't get kicked out. I think I'm pretty Methodist. But uh, if it's between that and having to tolerate all these people who are not really on board, but you make the best of it and you try to kind of facilitate them coming on board, you know, that just sounds miserable. It's like hurting cats, man. I Nobody wants to hurt cats. And if somebody does want to hurt cats, I think that's weird. And I don't want those people in charge. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess. I don't, I don't we know. need to cover more territory. I think it's your turn to read. Do you yeah, want me to? Yeah, 504. Okay, go ahead. Let's see, specific residential duties. Within the life of the annual conference to which they are assigned, bishops are entrusted with the following responsibilities. Number one, work with annual conference leaders to set vision and build a clear and uh, architect articulated, wow, missional strategy for the conference. The strategy should include action plans and benchmarks aimed at advancing the kingdom of Christ through initiatives related to establishing new faith communities, growing vital congregations, making mature disciples of Jesus Christ, and serving in ministries of justice and mercy. Number two, encourage, inspire, and motivate the clergy, laity, and churches of the annual conference to embrace and implement the vision and missional strategy of the annual conference, as well as the, as well as the vision and mission of the Global Methodist Church. And number three, Strengthen the local churches, giving spiritual leadership to both laity and clergy, and to build relationships with people of local congregations of the Episcopal area. Four, provide general oversight for the fiscal and program operations of the annual conference or conferences. This oversight may include special inquiry into the work of annual conference committees and agencies to ensure that the provisions of the Transitional Book of Doctrine and Disciplines and annual conferences and general church policies and procedures are followed. Five, ensure fair process for clergy and laity in all involuntary administrative and judicial proceedings through monitoring the performance of annual conferences, officials, boards, and committees charged with implementing such procedures. See Part 9. Six, form the districts after consultation with the presiding elders and after a vote of the annual conference has determined the number of districts. Seven, appoint the presiding elders to convene together and supervise the presiding elders and conference officials, which shall constitute the cabinet of the annual conference. That's paragraph 507. Eight, make and fix the appointments of the annual conferences as the Transitional Book of Doctrine and Discipline directs. That's paragraphs 508 through 513. Nine, divide or to unite a circuit station or missions as judged necessary for missional strategy and then to make appropriate appointments. Ten, transfer upon the request of the receiving bishop, clergy members of one annual conference to another, provided said members agrees to said transfer and to send immediately to the secretaries of both conferences involved, to the conferences, the conference board of ministries and to transitional leadership councils or its designee, written notices of the transfer of members. 11. Ensure the appropriate personal and supervisory record is kept and maintained on all clergy members 
as required by the Transitional Book of Doctrine and Discipline or action of the annual conference or bishop. There shall be only one file maintained for each member containing both personnel and supervisory information. Clergy shall have access to the entirety of their file and shall have the right to add a response to any information contained therein. And finally, 12, discharge such other duties as the transitional book of doctrine and discipline may direct. So that was a whole lot. You got notes on that? I am. I hadn't read point 11 before. That's interesting. Oh, the record? You see each person... Each member of the all clergy members, um, so all clergy members have a file. That's not laity. That's all clergy members. Yeah, and so the part I don't like, I, I think the president. So as we're thinking about what does the bishop need to do, what does the president pro tempore need to do? I'm of the mind that president pro tempore should do all the nerdy stuff, maintain all see, the files. Huh? You would see this file as the job of the president pro tempore. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, because if you got five annual conferences or four mm -hmm. or even three, like mm -hmm. having a record of all the clergy. Yeah. That's just, that seems like a lot. Yeah. For, well, to guarantee there's around. only one record. There's only one record. That, so you're not keeping it different records in different uh, committees and commissions. Sure. And the clergy member that it's a record of has access to it. That's great. Oh, yeah. No, I love that. That's good. Yeah. Like, I get mad whenever I learn that there, I have, like, a medical record that I can't have access to. Give yeah, me my medical records. that's weird. Yeah. So we should we should have access to these things. But there, it, this is so spread out. Like, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to the convening conference just so that we can delineate, okay, what does the president pro tempore do and what do bishops do? Because right. if I'm traveling around, I'm on the road all the time, and I'm meeting all these people, then to have me sitting in front of my computer... Uh, filing and organizing and going files, through all these yeah. processes just kill me now. That's just, I don't think that's feasible. I don't even think that's possible. Yeah, if, if the idea, I mean, Francis Asbury surely didn't have a have to sit down and look at files. Actually, he <laughs> He did? He did. And so so what he did, he had, a, he had, I mean, I don't think he had a separate file on every clergy, but he kept these big notebooks where he evaluated clergy performance all the time, and he, he wrote down flatly what he thought of every single clergy member, and you can read that today, <laughs> where he had some great things to say about some and others, he was like, no, and then he would do the same thing for churches, and he was responsible for deciding who would serve where. He was, he was a singularly amazing administrator and interpersonal person, but he had no wife and kids. You know, that was the uh, thing that suffered, you know? Same with John Wesley. I think what we're gonna imagine for this is that we are gonna make room for family but yeah, I mean, this, if they're moving around all the time, I mean, this is not make a life here for one year and then move. This is travel one place this week, another place right. this week, be going places in between. If we're doing that, then it seems to me that we really shouldn't even be considering. I mean, I guess you can consider young celibate people for that, maybe, but we're going to want older retired people. Yeah, yeah, surely they're going to have older people in the role of bishop, not like some right out of seminary young single yeah. man or woman right. um, running all over the place because, yeah, that doesn't sound... Yeah, either with no kids and a wife that's up for traveling or adult kids, and, yeah, there's this is not going to fit all lifestyles if they're yeah, going to the, do it well. Yeah, the, the whole... Well, part of the reason they wanted to stop the pastors doing that is, not, I mean, not only because the church wants to keep their pastor generally, mm -hmm. um, it's not... It's kind of hard on 
pastures to move around every year, every couple of years, I would think. So yeah, keep them in the place. But if they're going to say, okay, well, we're going to, you know, let the, let the pastors stay, but the bishops, you, we need you to start moving around now. Mm-hmm. Take your family, uproot them yeah. every week. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know. I, I don't see it being a long-term. Yeah, if they had a family, that's just not going to happen. Yeah. If they have a wife, you know, like uh, Bishop Scott Jones' wife, Mary Lou Reese, she's game. Yeah. She'll travel. She'll be on the road. She's a fantastic helpmate. Yeah. Um, but not all. Well, they yeah, their, their kids are all grown up now. They've got grandkids, yeah. but... Um, and even then, I don't think there there's points where they're not traveling all over the place. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and I don't imagine. I mean, they might continue to do that for a while, but yeah. One of the things this Episcopacy uh, task force came up with said um, Jones and the other bishop, Mark Webb, are going to have to go through the same election process as all the other bishops come the convening conference. So that's good. Yeah, yeah you don't automatically just get in because mm-hmm. you've been doing this. I'm fine. Looking at this document, some of the other things it talked about, uh, very first one is working with conference leaders to set a vision and build a clear and articulated missional strategy for the conference, and it should include both action plans and benchmarks. And this is something that I also spoke with Bishop Jones about whenever he was in the, the studio here with me. I'm, I'm of the mind that you can't really decide where the Holy Spirit is going to add growth and where you're not, and so to come up with these benchmarks I think can do a, more harm than good. What do you think? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a I'm not a fan of that generally. Like if you've got like loose like here's a here's a goal we should aspire to, sure, but if it's like okay, we need it's you've got 6 months, you need this many people in the church or in mm-hmm. the conference. Yeah. Like we need membership up to that like at some point you're just you're lower in the standards. Yeah, exactly. And that's not good. Yeah, this is what we've talked about a lot. There's there's growth numerically and then there's growth in quality. And growth in quality is I actually would be willing to have a public conversation about let's have a yearly test that all Methodist laity have to take just to assess their quality of discipleship. So, like the elders have, okay, you've got to re, you've got to be reevaluated every year. Like you want to be a member of the Methodist Global Methodist Church, you need to be evaluated every. I'm not opposed to that. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be just like an annual, like first of the year, we say our Wesleyan Covenant thing, we have a membership uh, renewal ceremony, and then we have like a test that we do that's, uh, do you know your Bible? What are your daily disciplines? Are you a part of, uh, how have you grown in the last year? Your membership actually means something. Yeah. Here you go. And then there's some, I mean, I don't imagine bishops reading every single one for every church, but if there's any way that you could kind of systematize it and just be like this, no water Methodist church on a five point rating, they're a four so far as their, their average, uh, discipleship level. And man, this other church over here, they're only at a one, you know, like if you got a huge bursting church, but the quality of their discipleship is this thin, but you have a group that has sustained, uh, growth that's slow over time, and they have super deep disciple. That's what I'm going for here. Right. I would like to think that bishops can discern those things and and go. We need the deep discipleship and steady growth rather than this explosive growth that that can't be maintained. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you, you would imagine the um, bishop being over that, not like the local church pastor. So. The way I understand systems working well is that it's good to have multiple people looking at the same thing, having a point person over that, but then having others that are also looking at it and saying, hey, are you are you seeing what I'm looking seeing at here? It, sure, yeah. No, if, if it's the job of the bishop to go into each, if they're traveling around to each church, mm-hmm. go in, review that every however so often, yeah, fine. Yeah, so if, the, if there is a missional plan 
Yeah, I don't think there needs, so I don't like this, okay, here's the Heartland Annual Conference, and we're different in all these ways, and we have a specific mission with these points that we do, and we do things in this, that seems a bit ridiculous to me. Well, yeah, it gets a, a, like a corporate kind of mindset that yeah. I don't really care for. That's like, oh, look, here's our vision statement, here's our mission statement, and I'm like, okay. okay. But if but if we have this general mission, which you is, college, good for you. we're going to make disciples of Jesus Christ that are authentically Methodist. We've already had the conversation about what a Methodist is and is not. We know our tools for doing that, primarily the class meeting, but also mechanisms in, in worship and, and you know, whatever. Then the bishop can come through on his circuitous route through his annual conferences. And I know I just said his several times, assumed it's a male, his or her. But then to say, okay, here's, as bishop, here's what I'm seeing. Here's the quality of discipleship that you guys are showing. Here's the quality of your leadership that I'm seeing for the next year, I want you guys to focus on this. Next time I'm here, I would really like to see this. Would you guys please make this a priority? Whenever I come back, I'm sending these notes to the president, Prent Tempor. I will read them before I see you again. I will ask you about these things. Please move forward. That makes sense, yeah. Sounds yeah. great. It seems like what they should aspire to if they're going to have bishops running all over the place. Yeah. yeah. That's that's not, you know, y'all pay attention on the Episcopacy Committee. I'm writing this stuff for you. <laughs> I'm joking, of course. Let's let's just look at a couple of these yeah, other things other, that you plowed through because it talked about things point two was encouraging, inspiring, motivating. Three was strengthening, building relationships. Uh, that that's all great, but yeah, this is you're all traveling the around. You're encouraging the clergy. Good, yeah, great. You're strengthening the churches. Sure, that seems basic. And again, I would just say this is all carrot and no stick. I really want some more stick language in here. If we're going to focus on these carrot things, I want to. You know, I, I would love it if there was one that's just like rooting out all evil. You know, how about <laughs> not not systemic racism, but bad actors in the system. Yeah. You know, uh, finding ineffective clergy and helping them find a different place the to be. Global Methodist Inquisition. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, point four: uh, the fiscal stuff. That seems like it would be a president pro tempore job. If if they're going to be different, like. If that that seems like I'm an administrative duty, mm -hmm. I don't know why the like if if sure the the bishop can have some say in it. Here's here's my thoughts on it. Yeah, yada yada. But I think that should be a primary. Well, and in my head, I'm going. Wait, does that mean that they need to tithe to my church when they visit it? Because you know, bishop, hold on to your money. We we need to fund ourselves. You know, like what? Yeah. I would just you know if if it's the bishop needs to tithe. Tied to the annual conference, I guess. I was going to say, didn't, we, didn't you bring that up the other day? I don't remember what video it was on, but it, it may have been in one of these. The I talked about how that one model presented by uh, Chris, I forget if it was, I forget which side Donan took and Ritter took, but one said clergy should tithe to the annual conference, and that's how it should be funded. Yeah. And I don't think anyone really is in favor of clergy tithing to the annual conference, but it would make sense to me if the bishop has to model tithing, yeah, tithe to right. the annual yeah. conference. That makes sense. Um, I, I stopped underlining after point four, but uh, the due process stuff was in point five, and I've already said why I'm concerned about that. Uh, that's bishops going through the process of correcting clergy. Um, and then forming districts, point six, I imagine presidents pro tempore doing um, the supervisory process in point seven should be shared between president pro tempore and bishop. Make and fix appointments, point eight. I don't have strong feelings about which one should do that. Uh, divide, circuits, stations, missions, same thing. Transferring, it seems to me that that paperwork would best be done by the the nerd in the pro tempore position. Yeah. And um, 
keeping, yeah, point 11 we've talked about and then other well, duties like and point 12. Come on. If we want other stuff, here's they, they're going to do other stuff. Yeah. So let's go a little bit further. Um, we are salary. now paragraph 505 compensation and salary limit. I think it's my turn to read, isn't it? It is yours. Point one, the responsibility for providing appropriate compensation, health insurance, pension contributions, and travel and office expenses for bishops serving with the within the U U.S. shall lie with the annual conferences to which he or she has been assigned. Bishops will be considered as employees of their respective annual conferences. The Transitional Leadership Council will establish compensation amounts adjusted for regional differences in the cost of living and the average salary of pastors in the Episcopal area. Anything to say about that? No. So the, um, I say that and I'm going to say something. Um, it's the annual conference's job to determine what the uh, bishop's salary is, essentially. That's what, what you read. Right? That's, yeah, that's what it sounds like to me. I don't know why it makes the distinction between those within the U.S. and those outside of the U.S. Maybe it'll give more details here in a little bit. But um, yeah, well, let's go a little bit further and see if we can conclude anything. Point two. The responsibility for providing appropriate compensation, health insurance, pension contributions, and travel and office expenses for bishops serving in an Episcopal area outside of the U.S. shall be borne by the general church through partnerships with U.S. annual conferences. Though such bishops shall be considered employees of some entity within their Episcopal area. The Transitional Leadership Council will establish compensation amounts adjusted for regional differences in the cost of living. The average salary of pastors in the Episcopal area and the currency exchange rate. Okay, so I said earlier that the annual conference determines the compensation amount. It's, it says the Transitional Leadership Council will establish Yeah, it says that, that in point one and point two, yeah. doesn't it? So the Transitional Leadership Council will figure out what the bishop should be paid. In the U.S., the annual conferences will take care of that bishop. Outside the U.S., the general church will pay for the bishops, which is weird to me. I don't know if I like that. because I So point one dealt with U.S. bishops. Yes. So, okay, that's interesting. So why, t say why you don't like that. I, I just think it, it creates this weird... Um, a dependency on the general church, like what? What? Where's the responsibility of the annual conference outside the U.S.? Like, they're an employee of that annual conference, but the annual conference doesn't pay their salary. What? Well, what's the point in that? I'm sure they've got some kind of reason for that, but the only thing I can think of is, well, they might not be. It might be a poorer region, so they might not make enough to oversee that region, and in which case, I mean, that kind of sucks. Sure, yeah. Uh, but it's still they're still an employee of the annual conference and therefore should be paid by that annual conference. I know that on the continent of Africa, bishops there get paid less than bishops here. Sure. You know, here in America, it's six-figure salaries. And well, and let it, me put on record, I think that's entirely inappropriate. I don't sure. think bishops should be making six-figure salaries. I hope that we don't – I hope the TLC does not set the rates that high. But the the significantly lower – payment of African bishops is still significantly higher there relative to the general population sure, so that yeah. some of the the bishops were able to actually live effectively as kings. Mm -hmm. And some of them actually live in the U.S. and only go there and have these compounds right. there. So the uh, well, this and, seems to recreate that problem. Kind of, yeah. And it, and it does say at the end of it, like, um, it's going to be um, 
dependent on it. Okay, it says the Transitional Leadership Council will establish compensation amounts adjusted for regional differences in the cost of living. So they're taking the cost of living into account wherever they're at. Yeah, it's not just a base like yeah. okay, you're this you're right. annual conference. Um, well, you're in the U.S., so automatically every bishop's pay is set to this. Mm-hmm. It's going to depend on where you're living, cost of living, yeah. um, and the average salary of pastors in the Episcopal area. So they're taking, they're already taking into account those two things. Does it does it say the average income of pastors in their area? Yeah, for the first part, um, and for the and for the for the outside the U.S. See that that was an idea I thought I had on my own, but I'm glad that it, I'm not the origin of such an idea. But yeah, I, I think that the way that we should calculate the pay of bishops is that they just make the average of whatever all the clergy in their region make. Yeah. But, I mean, that, and that makes sense. So I don't know why that would be different, why why they would make that a difference outside the U.S. other than... Yeah, I, either, yeah, either put it all into a common pot that all the bishops get paid out of, or make it the responsibility of the annual conferences that they govern over. But why have one system for the U.S. context... And another system for the non-U.S. context—that's yeah. that's odd. Because then you're you, then you've got to establish another fund at the general church level that's being paid into that's taking out of the uh, the annual conferences uh, budget. So, like, not only are you paying for your bishop, you're paying for somebody else's bishop, mm-hmm. but you don't have any say over that bishop. And that's just other than maybe at the general conference level. And it's just it's weird to me. I don't like that. Well, we'll see how much say we have over foreign bishops uh, as this section goes on. Um, another question that is volunteered by this is, it seems that the TLC is going to continue to go forward as a, a huge power broker in the GMC. And the question I would have is, how responsive is the TLC going to be to the grassroots GMC or the general conference. You know, it is clear that there has to be some kind of governing body between sessions of general conference, but the concern I and everybody out of the UMC, coming out of the UMC has is how can we keep that from becoming a swamp that that is no longer responsible to the the general conference. So, yeah. and I haven't read the portions of this dealing with the TLC, but as as we look at the role that the TLC has in the finances around bishops, it's I think right to see, oh, this has great capacity for trouble yeah 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 hopefully they iron all of this stuff out and absolutely we're not even discussing this later on right on let's look at point three in paragraph 505 each episcopal area within the u.s shall partner with one or more episcopal areas elsewhere in the world to provide the necessary funds for the episcopal office within those areas such funds will be raised in the u.s and passed through the general church designated for that episcopal area the Transitional Leadership Council shall arrange such partnerships based on the financial resources any given U.S. conference can reasonably provide. Where partnerships do not provide adequate resources to cover the Episcopal office costs, general church connectional funding may be used to fund Episcopal costs as needed. And then point four, cost well, for well, a bit. Go, go it's just a two-sentence thing. Cost for Episcopal travel outside the Episcopal area on behalf of the general church, council of bishops meetings, shall be paid out of general church funds, not conference partnership funds. Okay, what were you going to say? Uh, I was just going to ask, like, what, what would be the difference between an Episcopal area and uh, an annual conference? Are they the same thing or are they different? So within the United Methodist Church, they often corresponded, but not always. And okay. so this indicates to me that they're going to replicate that system. And I never fully understood how they set one versus the other. It seems to me like it would be a lot easier 
to to have a one-to-one correspondence. But now, well, it seems to me that if the uh, Episcopacy Task Force gets its way, there's going to be one Episcopal area that covers four or five annual conferences. And so that, that would correspond with multiple annual conferences, which would be fine. But that's not how it always works in the, the UMC. I, I, that just seems like unnecessary complication. And I, I guess I don't understand the reasoning for that. Like, why would you have multiple Episcopal areas in one annual conference? If the annual conference— No, 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 no. Other way around. There's multiple annual conferences in each Episcopal area. And then there's somebody over those Episcopal areas? There is a bishop? One bishop would be responsible for one Episcopal area. That is comprised of many annual conferences. But then you would want that to stay the same quadrennium to quadrennium. If 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 two episcopal areas are switching Kentucky back and forth each year, mm-hmm. then that would just be an administrative nightmare. You want to have a known quantity that you're bringing a bishop right. into. I don't know. It just seems like it's unnecessarily complicated. I guess I'm sure there's a reasoning for it that I just don't under, don't understand. But it just seems unnecessary. Um, and then again, it was there's something based on the on the pay. Um, each episcopal area within the United States shall partner with one or more episcopal areas elsewhere in the world to provide the necessary funding for the episcopal office in those areas. Yeah. So the idea is we've got an episcopal area in the U.S. We've got one outside the U.S., but the one outside the U.S. is not paying for themselves. The U.S. is paying for them. Yeah. Which. Well, what was the well, so I think I think the expectation is they're paying for themselves in some measure, and then we're supplementing what's lacking. For people who didn't see my conversation with Daniel Topolsky, he's the uh, president pro tempore in Bulgaria right now, and he feels very strongly about Bulgaria pulling its own weight. Mm-hmm. And so he's there is a short term plan for partnering with the Mid Texas Annual Conference to get on top of things fiscally that ends in them being financially independent in the end. Sure, yeah. If it's if it's a temporary thing where we're like getting them established, getting them on their feet, um, fine. I have no problem with temporary. It's just a continual supplementing their income creates a, a weird reliance that I, I could go a bunch of different ways where they could have like in the UMC, you've got the U.S., the, the progressives paying for parts of Africa and Africa is kind of beholden to them because they don't want to lose their money right. from this yeah. coming from the the progressives. So they're kind of like, oh, we'll, we'll kind of let some of the stuff in or let it slide that they're doing. Um, just because they're giving us money, and yeah. that just creates this perversion that is not not good. So it's spiritually toxic for a person who has money not to offer it to someone that they know needs money. Um, so if we're imagining a global system where money all stays local or regional, I'm against that. I think we need to be sending money and resources abroad. Sure, The conditions, the question is... Not even temporarily. I mean, there are some areas where government corruption is so bad that in order for people to flourish, they're just going to have to be infused on a continual basis indefinitely, in which case it's worth it to me if it's bringing people to Christ and and, uh, maintaining life where it would otherwise be extinguished. You know, every context is going to be different, but not every place has a free market like ours where people can thrive whenever they're given the tools for success that we are. The system that you're put in really matters. Sure, yeah. I guess if, if the idea is they need to be thriving financially and, and monetarily, I, I mean, I, I don't think that's a... I don't, I don't think the theology is that. I, I think what, the, what anyone who 
it would be really problematic if you had, here's the Americans, and they're the rich part of the church, and then here's the Ethiopians over here, and they're just the poor part of the church, and we love each other, and we respect each other, but, you know, there's no... There's no sharing in any substantial way. I think I think when you understand all of us are made in God's image, all of us are members of a covenant community to which we're held accountable, then there is an, equ- uh, 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 an equal balance that eventually takes place where we need to be less privileged, they need to be more privileged. We don't need some government from above saying, we're going to take from you and redistribute it here. We need to, of our own free will, say, hey, I know you guys, I love you guys, I care about you. I, out of my abundance, want to give to you that you might flourish like me. Sure, fine, yeah. So the question is, do we do that on a conference-to-conference level, as this talks about? I'm not really in favor of that. I think there are middlemen that can get in the way and really get uh, corrupt those things. What I would like to think—well, and I don't like the U.S. non-U.S. thing. What I would like to think is that we will establish partnerships between two annual conferences that then will connect individual local churches to each other where people in every local church, every local church has a relationship with another local church in another part of the world, and individuals in both churches are getting to know one another and care about one another. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense. And then there's there's not this, everybody needs to give this percentage, and it needs, there's just, we know each other, we love each other, we care about each other. There's an increasing caring for each other across the globe. Sure, yeah. So what you're saying is, it's is a, what you're suggesting is a voluntary thing, and this seems like it's a... Uh, you have to do this kind of thing. So mine, so the giving part is voluntary. I, there are things that I think should be compulsory in the GMC. Being a part of a class meeting, I think should be compulsory um, increasingly. Maybe not year one, but I think we should in that direction. And then local churches having a partnership with another local church in a missional area that we've designated. You know, like I would really like it if the Heartland Annual Conference just made clear your church should have a partnership within Kenya, Ethiopia. Yeah. Right I now, like that, that. Yeah. I mean, that's more of a personal thing, and it's not like, okay, you're just paying for all this stuff over there. We don't, you know, have no, yeah. no say in it. Like, yeah, it's not write us a check, we'll dis- disseminate right. it as we yeah. see fit. It's build relationships, and you will see where it is that you want to come alongside them and partner with right. them. No, I like that. Like, as an annual conference, like, okay, here, you're, you're a church over here, pick a church somewhere else, mm-hmm. and that's going to be your sister church. Yeah. Partner with them, get to know these people. They need they need finances for some for whatever reason, and you've got finances. Yeah, well, sure. and they're going to have things. So the conversation I had with Simon Mafunda of uh, heck, where does he live? Um, I cannot recall off the top of my head where he lives, but he's in Africa. Uh, he says we have gifts to offer the church there. Y'all don't even know about. They're not monetary, but he talked about some of them. And I thought I never thought of this. Yes, they have things to offer as well. But secondly, the the other thing I've done that I want to promote is just last week I, I published a, in a conversation I had with Jim Ramsey of the missionary agency uh, TMS Global, where this is the form of missionary work that that they really focus on is not we white Westerners do for you what you can do for yourself. It's we Christians partner with other Christians around the world and make new Christians around the world in ways that are respectful of what's there, but also brings to common an identity in Christ. So I, I, I was really impressed with that. I hope I hope y'all watch that if you haven't already. But I, I hope that we tweak this model of missionary engagement around the world, and I hope we can come up with a structure that just the U.S. is treated exactly the same as everywhere else. I just think it's really problematic long-term if we're like, 
well, we're the richest, so we need special attention. We either need special burdens or we need special benefits, one or the other. I just, I would rather say we're a global church. All Christians are worth the same regardless of where they are. And here's the systems that we're going to create to share in the blessings and burdens of ministry equally across the world. Do you like it? I'm fine with that, yeah. Okay. I, I guess my my pushback was, okay, here's the here's how much the, the bishop should be making, and we're going to take it from somewhere else because the uh, that annual conference just doesn't happen to make that much. And I, I guess, so I, I have no issue with missional giving. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, great. Partner with another annual conference, but like just setting up a, a mandatory... Um, mandatory. You've got to pay for all of this and think. As long know, as, like so that. I don't think I don't we're like going to get it figured out perfectly on the front end. I think we are going to continue to move money around in ways that people don't like. As long as we do it transparently, I'm sure. happy. Yeah. So if we calculate the salary in ways I don't like, fine. But at long, as long as we see the calculation, how it gets spent, I want all of this stuff just publicly available to everybody so that at each general conference, we can tweak it to make more sense of it. Um, it does seem overly convoluted at this point to me. Maybe I, I misunderstood how it is that that the salary will be calculated. But uh, if we could just have a flat here, figure out the average salary of all of your clergy at the front end of the year, and then that's the bishop's salary for right the there conference. for the annual yeah. or for the Episcopal area. You know, yeah, yeah. for doing that. Either way. Then that makes sense to me, easy peasy. You figure it out around the world because cost of living is differently different. And then, you know, fine, we can have grassroots subsidizing of poorer areas from richer areas, but that's based on relationship building on the front uh, and not administrative relationship. So that's we talked about some good deep things here that I hope I hope there's somebody on the Episcopacy task force that watches this and finds it worthy. If you didn't, I'm sorry. Um, next week, we're going to pick up on section two, page 65, paragraph 506. It's going to deal with presiding elders. And so that's, we'll, we'll get clear about that. And then I forget where presidents pro tempore are treated, but we'll, we'll run into them somewhere. So any other closing thoughts you think we should say before we cut off the recording? Uh, No, I don't, I don't really, I don't really think so. I mean, other than like, if you've, see something that's weird or we were wrong about something, make a comment. Um, and then I'll let you give the spiel about, uh, <laughs> no, people have been, us, no, people have been out. really, uh, supportive and respectful in all this. Um, I did get, uh, an accusation of ageism last week after my yeah. remarks on old. Well, to be fair, it's the fact that you only got one, I was kind of surprised about, I, I thought we were fair. I yeah. don't, I think he just like watched part of it and then he just, Heard that and then just quit and didn't actually go. Well, he he wrote me privately and he had one other instance where I had seemed uh, dismissive of of older folks. So uh, I'll write him privately, but uh, publicly I would just say I I've loved a lot of old folks in the church and I generally prefer doing church work with older folks than younger folks. Man, if you think I got biases and bigotries against old people, just listen to me talk about young people, <laughs> you know, but um, yeah, I think there are frustrating things about every demographic and, and there are generalizations that you can make about old people that there are plenty of exceptions to, but anyway, I'll follow up with that guy that, that, that was saying that. Um, and then you know, there, there's some other people that are more procedural and, and understand more of this minutia than we do. And we really appreciate those comments. And uh, in general, 
uh, I, I found all of the feedback helpful. So I hope I hope once you get done watching this, go ahead and leave a comment for how you received it, what you're thinking on. If uh, if you think we did a good job, send it to other people in the GMC in particular. I just think it's good to think about these things, even if you're not a decision maker. It's just good to understand these things and think about the covenant body that you're a part of. And then, of course, you know, if you want to support the work that we're doing, then go over to locals.plainspoken.locals.com and uh, uh, subscribe wherever you're watching this or listening to this because we're trying to build something here, and I hope I hope you want to be a part of that. Uh, I was just going to say if you want to give to the church and get a tax right off, the, there's the option to go and use our tithing link directly to the No Auto Methodist Church and do it that way. There's a line item for plain spoken, I believe. Oh, okay. On yeah. the yeah, nowatamethodist.org is our uh, email address, so you can go there. So, Thanks, but CJ. with uh, what is locals? With locals, there's extra stuff that you get that you wouldn't get if you just did it to the church. So whatever, yeah. pick your pick which one. We appreciate it either way. All right, guys, that's gonna be it for today. Uh, God bless you. I'll see you next week, if not before. <laughs>